Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We can't be in the same room, but a podcast can't be stopped. Cinemas are empty, the industry is fucked, but we won't log off. We're not going out, we're staying at home. And when we watch films, we watch them alone. We sit in our pants, stick on something crap, and then we hit Skype for a little chat. Little chat, little chat, little chat, little chat, little chat. Alright, welcome to another episode of Film Chat, the most consistently released and uh, produced podcast uh, going that's out there. Um, Danny, how are you? I am well. Nothing much glad new to, be, to report. Glad to be back on this with you. Glad to be back. Been away, watching a lot of movies. You know, it's been the Oscar season, a lot of hard-hitting, tough dramas out there for me to sink my teeth into. Did you Did you follow the uh, the Oscars very much? Uh, not really. Just the, the controversy about Anthony Hopkins not being there to pick up his award, which I thought was very funny. Uh, <laughs> just because, like, do you do you follow this? Like the rules, the sort of weird rules Oscars had about like picking up. You had to be at a special like Oscar hub somewhere around yeah, the yeah. globe. I, I yeah, I uh, yeah, I heard about this. It did sound it sound it sounded really strange. Like I feel like if you want to make your um, Oscar ceremony, you know, COVID um, friendly or whatever, just let people attend however they want. You know, rather than uh, making them go through this rigmarole. This guy is in his eighties. You know. He's living in Wales. He'd have to either go down to London or go to Dublin. And everyone thought Chadwick Boseman would win anyway, posthumously. Also, is it even a big deal? Like, it's not like the first time that anybody has not been present at the Oscar ceremony when on when they receive an award. Like, that happens, right? Yeah, absolutely. I just like the idea that Anthony Hopkins just like, woke up in the morning. He's like, oh, I've won an Oscar. Yeah, cool. Does a little brief shout out on Instagram where he's constantly posting great content. I mean, he's an influencer now, I think. Do you think that his status as an influencer is maybe eclipsing his um, status as an actor? Yeah, I think uh, when he dies as a bitch, he will mainly focus on his Instagram posts and like there'll be a brief mention to his acting career at the end. <laughs> he also won uh, two Oscars, was in Silence of the Lambs or some shit, you know. But mainly it's his great, his great posts. Do people really want to watch uh, a some sort of like hardcore drama with Olivia Colman where... You know, he has uh, Alzheimer's or something. Like, no, that's not what people want to watch. They want to see him. I don't know actually what he does, but like reading a poem or stroking a llama or doing, doing something wholesome. It's like it's sort of a mixture of him like reading sort of like Dylan Thomas and stuff or just him just sort of hanging out. But because he's got such an incredible, like rich, sonorous voice, everything he says is just like imbued with so much sort of wisdom, even if it's the most like basic thing in the world. 
I kind of love it. That's what makes him. That's what makes him and other actors such good social media influencers. Yeah, PewDiePie has a shit voice. Whether they're on stage or in a, in, a, in a blockbuster or in an art house drama, or just shooting a video on their phone, you know they know how to captivate an audience. They know how to deliver a line. They uh, have because you know he has great understanding of, of his craft. So of course he can uh, he can get big numbers on Insta. Absolutely, yeah. But other than that, I didn't really follow the Oscars. Other than that, it was extremely like not watched. No one really cared. I mean, it feels like every year the big news new story is that like the viewing figures are down. Like award ceremonies have less and less influence on like anything. People don't really tune in, and now with no red carpet or like you know whatever, there's not enough. There's no bits for Kimmel to do, so there's even less of a show. Yeah, I mean, if they can't even get me to pay attention, a man with a just about still going film podcast, <laughs> like what, what hope, what hope do they have? Well, good morning. Well, here I am in my homeland in Wales. And at 83 years of age, I did not expect to get this award. I really didn't. And um, very grateful to the Academy and thank you. And I want to pay tribute to Chadwick Boseman, who's taken from us far too early. And again, thank you all very much. <laughs> I really did not expect this. So I feel very privileged and honored. Thank you. Sam and Danny both watched a film and they decided to record a few opinions on the things they saw. You're gonna hear them in a moment or so. There could be angry disagreements, but their views are normally quite close. Let's join review, share between two podcast brothers. Do they let one another speak or do they interrupt each other? The light is on, the guys are in, so let the chat begin. Stop talking now. Review time. Promising young woman. This is uh, this was a sort of breakout hit. Uh, uh, made a splash in awards season. It is a uh, thriller written and directed by Emerald Fennell in her directorial debut. Um, Fennell was the showrunner on season two of Killing Eve and is also an actress who played Camilla Parker Bowles in The Crown. And uh, Promising Woman stars. Um, uh, sorry. So again, yeah. Promising Young Woman stars uh, Carrie Mulligan, who plays Cassie, a um, the young woman of the title, who has dropped out of medical school and now spends her time as a kind of vigilante, uh, turning the tables on creepy men in nightclubs, where she goes to uh, pretends to be drunk and vulnerable, and kind of um, entices creepy men who think they're going to take advantage of her. And then it turns out that she was only pretending to be drunk and she kind of um, flips the script and uh, freaks them out. Here is a clip. Can you call me a cab? You just got here. I need to go home. No, don't go. Stay. My God, you are so annoying. I need to go. No, you don't want to go home. I need to go. Hey, Neil. Yeah. Is that I need to go home? 
Holy shit. Whoa, 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 whoa. What is this? Are you some kind of psycho or something? Why'd you say that? I just thought that you were... Drunk? Yeah. Really drunk? Fuck. Yeah. Well, I'm not. But that's good, isn't it? I think you should leave. Oh. Now you want me to leave? No. I just... I'm really high. Like, I'm really fucking high right now. I don't know what I'm doing. I think you should go. But a second ago, you were determined for me to stay. You were pretty insistent, actually. I'm a nice guy. Are you? So this has uh, been pretty well received, although some people don't like it at all. Uh, but it uh, did get a bunch of Oscar nominations, including for Best Picture and Best Director and uh, Best Actress for Carrie Mulligan. Uh, and also um, took home one gong in the form of Best Original Screenplay for um, Emma Fennell. Um, so what did you what did you make of this one, Danny? All right, listen up, women. I'm about to mansplain. <laughs> Why this film? I, I did not care for it. I thought it was uh, a sort of... I don't know, problematic is a slightly overused word, but my sort of hot, pithy take is that this movie is out to sort of say something, which is very obvious from like the opening sequence, which I thought was the kind sort of strongest bit of the movie, but there's like a sort of moment right before the credits where, you know, sure, it's just like, it's very clear, like, pay attention, audience, this film is about something. And everything in the film, like the sort of the characters... The sort of storytelling, the logic is all kind of secondary to like the points the film is trying to make about rape culture and misogyny and the way men excuse behavior. And watching a film, I was kind of going back and forth, like whether I was like, am I sort of enjoying it or not? I couldn't, never was quite into it. And then the final act of the movie, which is almost like, I guess, uh, the kind of conclusion of the essay it's writing was so tone deaf and, uh, just sort of comically misjudged that it just made me lose faith in you know I just like I just kind of dismissed the whole thing I was like you did not stick the landing and it makes me think like you didn't even know what you're doing to begin with you you women filmmakers making this film I was very angry I instantly went to my <laughs> started blogging I started going on Instagram harassing people just because I was so angry um so yeah I just found it just a curiously kind of misjudged film like, one hand, it's trying to be the sort of stylish, sexy thriller, you know, with cool, like, needle drops and a uh, very sort of uh, sort of Kill Bill-esque aesthetic. But then also weirdly kind of pulls its punches. So I found it sort of disappointing. It doesn't, doesn't deliver the genre thrills or give you much to sort of chew on. So it was a bit yeah. of a dud to me. Yeah, I pretty much agree. I didn't enjoy watching it at all. <laughs> didn't have fun watching this film at all and i think i can see right a version of this movie which really goes like embraces the um that like fantasy roots and then uh but the sort of men that she ends up taking down uh like it doesn't really hit the target that the filmmaker is going for because it's only looking at kind of like creepy guys in nightclubs where it might it might look like she's just taking down bad apples or something whereas she's very keen to skewer like all of society in general like male culture as a whole particularly like would be nice guys as well as other institutions like the legal system um and you know uh, college um deans you know uh, figures of authority at, at universities as well as other women like her peers who sort of tolerate or or, or enable this kind of misogynistic behavior 
But having cast the net that widely, then you can't, I think this is the logic anyway, then you can't have the protagonist then go all out with, with her revenge stuff and be just killing everybody or doing this kind of extremely cathartic violence because she would not be, I don't know, the audience might not buy into it. So I think it just ends up caught in this weird place where trying to do something that's very grounded, nuanced, and uh, is addressing all sorts of different dynamics in the kind of rape culture that it's depicting, and at the same time satisfying the, the audience's desire for catharsis in seeing a woman turn the tables. Hmm. And you just get the worst of both worlds. And I think there might be a way to do this where you can have your cake and eat it. And with this movie, I felt like the cake... <laughs> it's been lost wholly you know no no one is getting a cake basically like the thrills aren't there because whenever you expect her to do something really cool and badass she doesn't <laughs> yeah yeah it doesn't happen um if you're watching like a revenge fantasy or whatever your moral compass is adjusting accordingly where you're like i'm just watching a movie and if she's gonna like blow some guys away that's cool but if you're watching a grounded film where you're really kind of switched onto it then you start thinking like why is she subjecting some of the women to this extended bouts of like psychological and emotional torture? <laughs> Whereas the men, the real, per- you know, the guys who are like physically doing the, the thing get like, you know, stern talking to you and otherwise seem to be let off the hook. So it's sort of co- You end up asking yourself all of these questions and that like means that what should be this sort of satisfying, thrilling story then just doesn't, it doesn't deliver on that on that level. But then all of those thriller aspects to it, which are now striking these kinds of implausible notes, they detract from the from the grounded reality of that more kind of uh, nuanced human story, which is a lot more psychologically rich or whatever, because it, you just start thinking like, but this doesn't make any sense. Like no one would ever do this. And who, what, what is this? Who is, what? what is her personality even like? <laughs> Um, so, uh, so yeah, so I, I just really felt like it was a misfire that, that basically didn't, didn't work at all. Yeah. When I was watching it, I watched it with my girlfriend and she made this comparison where she thought like, it, it felt very much like Kill Bill and like, especially the sort of opening sequence of Kill Bill, which is, you know, tries to forget which of the, what's the name, the Vivica Fox character. And it's all like big colors and it's like sort of candy floss worlds. And even her sort of. It's the poster, but Carrie Mulligan's, like, stripper costume is very, like, Elle Driver, the Dal Hannah character. And then if you look up Emerald Fennel on Twitter, her, like, profile picture is of her cosplaying as Elle Driver. So it's obviously a huge influence. But, like, I feel like the Tarantino thing is, like, you know, what if uh, real things happen to movie characters? Is maybe a glib way to describe a lot of his films. Like, in in, in Reservoir Dogs, it's like, what happens when you, if you actually get shot by a gun? It's like, it's the most horrible thing, and the guy spends 90 minutes dying. And he's so adept at that sort of shift between, uh, somehow moving between real logic and movie logic, and that seamlessly. Whereas she just d- is not a, as an accomplished filmmaker. Uh, so, so it just doesn't work, basically, I would say. And I think, like, even something that really, like, when my sort of doubts started to creep in, it's just like basic kind of scenes, the way they're constructed are just like very clumsily done. Like this is Alfred Molina is the sort of one scene character and his character is introduced, his arc is completed <laughs> all within about two minutes in a very sort of like poorly, like there was a bit like, felt like they're running out of time or something. This whole movie felt very like quickly put together and sort of rushed out. 
but at the same time feels quite dated. I felt like five years ago at the sort of when the Me Too stories were kind of breaking, I might have had something to say, but it feels like it's just recycling kind of talking points. There's like a sort of checklist aspect to the movie where it's like, uh, you know, uh, campus rapes and like the sort of infrastructure of how people aren't prosecuted and stuff. But then, it, you know, what is its gaze, as you were saying, to, you know, to institutions, but it misses the crucial one, which is the police. And especially watching this movie in the wake of like Sarah Everard's death, it's just like this person is just not plugged into the subject they're talking about. So it's like, how can you talk about institutions and misogyny? And that feels like such a sort of glaring omission in a way that's kind of unforgivable. Yeah, it 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 it, gra- it grated on me. It grated on me pretty um, uh, pretty badly. I got to say. I think, yeah, the, something that the, the sort of internal comparison I kept making while watching it was to um, Prevenge, that movie. Who's the... Alice um, Lowe. Alice Lowe, right, who wrote and directed and starred in Prevenge, which has actually a very similar plot of, like, a woman who is alpha revenge and has this kind of past event which is motivating her. And as the film goes on, you learn more and more about um, what happened and, uh, you know, what, what, how she's, what she's going for and what she's going out there. And Prevenge is a much less political film in sort of, it's not making this kind of like bigger um, political point, but it just is a film which seemed a lot more steady on its feet. It knew what it was doing, was delivering the thrills and had a huge amount of wit to it and does something really well that I think Promising Young Woman stumbles with, which is marrying all of the like, uh, action in the film to this exploration of the psyche of the protagonist in, in 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 a way where you can go on this journey with the main character about which is relatable to real life in some way that feels like psychologically quite quite rich while also enjoying the more um you know uh, gorier or, or more extreme aspects of the plot which obviously you know in real life would be horrifying and uh i just think yeah it's not something that that, that promising young young woman really really succeeded in i thought all of the actors were a little underserved by it and again it's like some of the more two-dimensional kind of checklisty types of characters who are obviously fulfilling archetype roles to make particular points about bigger social problems and are somewhat like ciphers for that reason it might be more forgivable if they were or like you know it might be easier if they were um uh just disposable because you're watching some kind of poppier, fun, more fun film. But because it has bigger ambitions than that, it just makes those um, weaknesses a bit more glaring. Yeah, I think Carrie Mulligan's very good in it. I think she's the best thing about it, basically. Her performance, you can always rely on the actors to sort of do a good job, I feel like. It's sort of, her performance goes some way to sort of mitigating the kind of holes in the screenplay. You know, she was doing a lot of... Uh, you know, still waters run deep acting. Uh, whereas, like, there's just the script. There is actually there, there is nothing else going on in the script, but she just sort of conveys somebody with some sort yeah. of psychological depth to her. her. Her character is close to just making just making zero sense. I think. Yeah. Just normally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sense. I think that's why it's but... good. It's almost like you know that, that she's really she's really working here. You know, like. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. Um. So I think she's a promising young woman, and I think Emerald Fennell, on the basis of this film, is not. I don't know. I guess, yeah, like you, I was constantly thinking of like other superior films, like 
Angels Wear White, which is a very underseen movie by Vivian Q, which is excellent. Or uh, I May Destroy You, not a film, but like a recent... Oh yeah, I heard the comparison to I May Destroy You. I was listening to the Kermode review of it on something. He was talking to some guy who compared it unfavorably to I May Destroy You, and they both agreed that that, that was better, So, I, which I haven't seen, so maybe I should just watch that. Just watch that. So, I don't know. I think I'd probably like enjoy talking about it more than watching it. You know, it's almost like the movie has a, a take or like the movie's trying to say something and it's kind of fun to dissect like how it's not doing that. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I always I always like having opinions on things when they've received a lot of rewards or whatever, whether I agree or not. So I'm happy to watch it for that reason. But I definitely was not it was not into it. Yeah. And I think sort of its success is that it's kind of like on the surface subversive, but not really. It reminds me a little bit of like how Free Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, I felt, got like a sort of awards bump because it seemed it was about like this woman not taking any shit. But it, but that actual film is kind of about like a racist redeeming himself. Yes. <laughs> the movie, like the award is for the poster and the trailer, not the actual film. It's sort of like suggesting a much more subversive, interesting film than it actually is. Um, so, you know, I just wish it had lived up to the premise in a way, but it just sort of it pulls punches. Of, I think there's a lot of truth to it. The more that the three billboards recedes, I think the worse that film becomes in my memory. Yeah, I think it was just very well placed in the calendar. I don't know. It just seemed yeah. like it caught. I'm thinking that movie was terrible. Probably yeah, was yeah. Awful. It was quite a bad film, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, another great performance from its lead actor. When will these poor women stop having to perform these terrible, terrible parts? Ugh. When will it end? Frances McDormand is the real promising young woman. Yeah, she's the real one. She's going places. Superhero films announced. Casting rumours leaking out. M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated. Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated. Meryl Streep's Oscar tipped. Matt Damon's in a viral vid. So, 10 years ago, the career of John Boyega was launched in Joe Cornish's debut film, Attack the Block. A mere 10 years later, they're going to make Attack the Block 2. Um, is it past the limitations on spoilers of Attack the Block? Basically... I would the, say so, yeah. Yeah, the premise was aliens attack a South London council estate and a group of... It's so weird to say hoodies, which feels like just like, you know, that is a phrase from 10 years ago. Five hoodies, a, a, a group of nerdy wells, um, <laughs> defend the block against aliens, and uh, yeah, it's really it was a really excellent film, like kind of surprisingly good in a way. I was just like, oh, Joe Cornish is a real uh, real director with something to say, and one of the things that's so good about the movie is how kind of political it is, and the ending is all there's a lot of stuff about the police assuming guilt and blame based on you know. Uh, people's ethnicity and it feels like it is a film that could sort of definitely have a sequel and i don't know it just feels like that kind of chiming with the anniversary and all like the black lives matter protests which john boyega was obviously a part of i just like the idea of another like politically motivated sci-fi genre film set in london it's quite a cool prospect the thing the thing that attacked the block i think is that whatever social critique it had seemed to be kind of incidentally coming on with just doing its premise well, which was basically setting out to make a John Carpenter style film, like some 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 tight uh, genre. A siege uh, movie, based on the siege. siege movie. Yeah. 
and setting that in a South London council block, which is, you know, can be very dramatic uh, landscapes, you know, um, like they're, they're very vertical and they're kind of imposing and there's, there's a lot of interesting ways to shoot them. And it's just a cool setting and uh, like a, a fun idea, basically. And it's something that Joe Cornish executed really well. And obviously he took some care over the um, depiction of that of that world and of the of the young protagonists within it and just showed them sympathetically and uh, yeah it was it was extremely successful and I, I think that it I don't think it was like super political necessarily but um I don't know I, I don't I don't have a super sophisticated take on the class politics of uh of attacking the block but I think that there's a lot of room for um that particular world like the inner city working class environment to be explored in some other uh in like another sequel maybe like how that world has changed in the past 10 years since it was initially made yeah well i think it's it's that thing of like if you you know however deliberate or not like sort of cons or something uh some sort of social critique they just have they just kind of sharpen over time just somehow like the ending i watched it the other day like attack about the ending like some of the lines is like one of the kids says, why are you always arresting the wrong people? And it's like a sort of reverse Ghostbusters where they've saved the world, but they get arrested. <laughs> right, yeah. And they're all yeah. they're all cheering and like everyone's like yelling at the police to like free Moses. It's just like, it feels just like incredibly on the pulse, you know? So I hope they just sort of lean into it more. Like make the every, you know, ACAP, just have the police... Uh... <laughs> Well, they, they are the aliens now. They are the aliens. Yeah. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Moses, Can you hear that? And in more sequel news, which is a little old by now, but um, since we last recorded a podcast, so new for us, uh, Knives Out, Ryan Johnson's hit detective, so knowing detective comedy story with uh, Daniel Craig, uh, has uh, Ryan Johnson has signed a huge deal with Netflix for Knives Out 2 and 3, a $450 million deal. My God in which Daniel Craig will reprise his role as Benoit Blanc and is going to investigate a bunch of new mysteries. I mean, we were saying that Attack the Block, you know, lends itself to a sequel quite naturally and certainly a Poirot-style protagonist is not going to feel weird at all for him to have subsequent mysteries to um, uh, to explore. Um, and Knives Out was a pretty good movie. It's very, yeah. very well made, extremely entertaining and... Uh, great performances and a clever little script. So I'm, I'm all for uh, seeing a bunch more like it. Um, no, no, it's really exciting. I like, um, the thing that I wonder about is like, what sort of elevated Knives 
Knives Out, like past it being like a sort of who done it, because it had this sort of interesting structure where it became you found out who did it, and then it became her story, the um, Anna de Armas character. And there was obviously a sort of very pointed message about the haves and the have-nots. So, I don't know. I just, like, it's... On one hand, it's like you could see how it could totally be a franchise, but it just seems like the sort of kind of brilliant genre trick of the first movie, it's hard to, like, think of another one of those, you know? Like, anyway, not my problem. You know? Sort out Ryan, or I'll be, uh... I can't wait to launch a hate campaign against this new Knives Out 2. It's going to be the worst sequel since The Last Jedi. Probably. Do you think that if they were really committing to the trick of Knives Out, that the franchise would really be built around Marta? Marta? The, the, the maid character. Yeah. You're right. It should be the Marta de Cabrera's franchise, you know, and then Benoit Blanc would not appear again. You're right, they've sold out. And instead, the sequel would just feature a different famous detective. I would actually, that would be great if there was just like a different, like, southern gentleman detective. He's like also had an alliterative name, you know? Yeah. <laughs> He's called like. Uh... This is Nigel Noir, like. Nigel Noir. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Vincent uh, Vare. And, uh, and he just like turns up with some other outrageous accent to solve some different. Uh, some different new mystery. All played by uh, former Bond actors. It's like Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> Wouldn't that be good? I, I'd love that. Cast, casting Pierce Brosnan as like some French detective. I felt like uh, Daniel Craig sort of lucked out. He's like, I've just got too old and like, I hate Bond so much. I was like, how can I... And now he's got like a new franchise, which is like just the opposite. Instead of like running around and, you know, grunting, he has to just like sit down and deliver long monologues. With like super verbose, like bizarre, you know, turns of phrase. A, a fortune teller told Daniel Craig that the only way that he would ever be happy was if he played characters with a thick southern drawl. <laughs> and he immediately got himself cast in Logan Lucky, and then when that when that didn't work out, he must have been thinking, "Oh, this is this was bullshit. I got I got sold a false prospectus on how I was going to save my career." I really thought the the Joe Bang cinematic universe was off to a flying start, but <laughs> and then and then he got the script for Knives Out, and he was like, "Ah, oh, this is this is the one. This is it. This is the one." Alrighty, shall we Snyder cut it up? Alright, settle in for the four hour review of Zack Schneider's... Zack Schneider's Justice League cut. I've just reversed the name. So, <laughs> uh, so we talked about this before, but basically uh, Justice League was besieged of problems during its production. They like rewrote the script early on in production because it like they started shooting the day after the Batman v Superman reviews came out. And they're like, oh god, everyone hates this. It was originally going to be two films, and it became one. And then Jack, uh, Jack Snyder, and then Zack Snyder had to step away due to family tragedy. Joss Whedon was brought in to reshoot the movie, uh, so finish the movie, reshoot scenes to make it less grim on the you know studio's request. And uh, that movie came out and was terrible, and everyone didn't like it. And the fans, the Snyder hardcore fans, have been campaigning for. Warner Brothers to release the Snyder Cut, the true vision 
and they got their wish last year when they greenlit this. But it's not a film anymore. It's now like a four-part miniseries. So it's not quite the sort of, you know, an alternate reality where Zack Snyder stayed on the film. Probably wouldn't have delivered a four-hour film to HBO Max. Probably just delivered a normal length film. And so uh, it exists now. It's four hours long. And he's got rid of all those annoying quips Joss Whedon uh, put in. And he's added in lots of slow motion. Made it lots dark and gloomy and all the deleted scenes they're back in it here's a clip I do think this is a film that is worth talking about, even though we're coming to it now a very long time after it came out, because it is essentially unique. I don't know if there's anything that is remotely comparable. It's not just a director's cut, but they basically went back and shot a couple of new scenes, completely changed it, added several hours to the running length, and it's not canon in whatever you might consider to be the canon of the DC universe. And it also seems to have been driven by like Twitter hashtags or like Reddit users or something like how many millions have been moved by like, I mean, people were impressed when they got Samuel Jackson to say the line, I'm sick and tired of these motherfucking snakes on this motherfucking plane, just because people on Reddit thought that that line should be in snakes on a plane and they put it in. But like, this is on a completely different order of magnitude in terms of like found outrage sort of uh, changing things. And in a way, its existence kind of is a bit of a rewriting of history because people did not like Zack Snyder's Dawn of Justice Batman v Superman movie. It was shit. Like, it got terrible reviews. Yeah. Everyone hated it. <laughs> That's why they brought Joss Whedon in. I mean, obviously, uh, part of, partly because of... Uh, uh, Zack Snyder like having to leave the project but like obviously the the at the time um they were shooting those two movies back to back so there was no time for course correction in between the like poisonously bad reception for what was definitely a bad film Batman v Superman before what they were doing with Justice League so that was just going to be a continuation of the same thing and understandably the studio was like well everyone's going to hate this one too and it's costing us a huge amount of money so they tried like to completely change gears and bring in Joss Whedon, uh, which obviously was a disaster. But it's just odd to think of the the lost Zack Snyder version of the movie as like, oh, it would have been amazing. It's like, well, his previous film, which was completely his own personal vision and seemed to be totally without any other kind of studio interference, was like really bad. So <laughs> why would the pure Snyderverse version of this movie actually be good. So it's just like a really, really strange cultural artifact, I think. Like, did it make money? Like, who was, what was the, like, what was the modeling? You know, like, how did they decide that this was a good thing for the studio to do? It feels like even if it was a success, it's only going to make people dissatisfied with any subsequent films that come out 
that are purportedly following on from the continuity of the hated original Justice League movie, right? Like, if you love the Snyder Cut, if the movie is a huge hit and everybody loves it, aren't they just going to be, like, like stabbing themselves in the foot with regard, or shooting themselves in the foot with regards to the future of the Justice League franchise because it's not following on from this. So it's just this kind of what-if film that's, like, rubbing in the fact that they ruined the first one in a way. Yeah, I have no idea. I just They must have just crunched the numbers and just figured people enough people want to see this version of the film somehow and it's worth spending the money on finishing all the VFX shots and it's come out and... That's another thing. It's, I, I don't understand how any studio is making money or streaming service really operates. It seems like some sort of... When we're all, like, you know, living in a wasteland eating rats or whatever, be like, well, we should have seen this coming because none of this stuff was feasible or sustainable. Yeah, we're too we're too much of a pair of geriatric millennials, Danny, to uh, to to understand the um, like the but the budgeting for the studios these days. Like when movies aren't just they don't just make money because people buy tickets to go and see them, but but through some other bizarre means. Yeah, I mean, there's certain things that are like just by the virtue of the fact they've had you know years to of post production. You know, a lot of the CGI and effect shots in the theatrical just Whedon version were a bit, uh, you know, sort of comically bad, probably because some poor overworked VFX artists had like four hours to crank out a shot and now they've had loads of time. So, you know, the sort of, a lot of the VFX is a lot better, but you would just expect that, you know, if every movie had like a really long post-production period and millions behind it, that would be true. Uh, it is just more, I guess there's something to be said, like, or at least it's sort of consistent. Like, I think Zack Schneider's sort of aesthetic is so... Uh, distinctive you can't really cut around it and something that's weird about justice league is that like they had to sort of like pitch up the grade and did their best to not make it seem like doom laden but it's so sort of baked into the film to begin with that they can't really do it so like it is like one vision i'm not sure if the story's better told i think some of the joss Whedon. i mean joss Whedon has had his own controversies recently or whatever but like as a storyteller he's got like better instincts and some of the sort of plot mechanics he put into the theatrical cut make a bit more sense. Uh, especially because this Bambi Superman's inheriting this bizarre situation where Superman's dead, which is like a weird way to start a Justice League movie to begin with. So everything about it is a bit messed with. But I think like the theatrical cut is not a good movie, but it's a, there's a bit more of a story shape to it. But it's weird to compare a film to a four-hour mini-series. You know, they're not really comparable. They're kind of two different mediums almost now. And it's also like, it's, you know, there are so many scenes in the film which were deleted from the theatrical cut. And you'd just imagine if Zack Schneider was making a theatrical cut film, they would also be deleted. They're clearly deleted scenes. They're like, they're not pushing the story forward. But it's almost like, it's almost to avoid another hashtag. It's like, we've given you everything now, fans. There are no more, there's no more film left on the cutting room floor. So you can't get us to release any more footage because it's all in here now. There it is. Make your own films from now on. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, as you say, as a sort of cultural artifact, interesting. As a piece of entertainment, extremely lacking. Endless slow motion. It's sort of, I mean, fair play to Zack Snyder. He doesn't give a shit what people say. He's like, oh, too much slow motion? There's just so much slow motion. Almost to the point that, like, he's trying to win a bet or something. Like, oh, you think I use too much slow motion? Like, there's five slow motion scenes in the first one, first hour of this film. Yeah. It has, I think that... Zack Snyder has really lost his sense for visual flair in some respects. Yeah. There are definitely some... Because that's kind of his thing, right? It's part of what the slow motion is about. 
Slow motion is a way of saying I've composed this shot so well that I'm really going to linger on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gonna gonna keep it going, you know, so that you're seeing something that's that's showing some balletic dynamic movement, but it's going to happen really slowly so you can really appreciate the beauty of it. And his it's always characterized his movies and he definitely has a certain amount of talent for composing interesting looking and, and attractive shots like that can make for some exciting trailers. And I think that is still true, even in even in uh, the Justice League. But both Batman v Superman and Justice League suffer from being from ugliness, basically. Whereas, like, there is a certain kind of heavy metal thing that he had in like Three Hundred, which is like a super, it's an extremely racist and fascist film. <laughs> um, but I think a bit more like visually engaging than the last two superhero movies which are just really stodgy and extremely lacking in exciting action scenes or like memorably uh, cool things happening it's like yeah a lot of the fighting happens in like sewers caves or just various gray wasteland environments like the finale of batman v superman takes place in this like irradiated factory or like Batman and Superman are fighting inside an old like bathroom and like some crumbling ruin and everything is dark, grimy, miserable. And the only light is like CGI lasers. Uh, And it just looks ugly. Like it looks so, so ugly. Like you compare it to something like Aquaman, which I think is basically like them. It's like them doing what they wanted the Justice League to be like after Joss Whedon had done with it, you know? Yeah. Like, and it's, it does a very similar thing. There's a bunch of slow-mo. There's some, like, really out there, like, visual styling. A lot stuff. of fish. Yeah, an obscenely enormous, like, billions, like, just vast hordes of fish in that film. But, um, uh, but it just has a lot more going on in terms of varied environments and cool-looking stunts and stuff than something like Justice League, which just doesn't have any good... A- There's no good action in that film whatsoever, I don't think. No. Even Batman v Superman had the... Um, uh, the bit where Batman takes out a bunch of goons uh, and there's like a bit more of like some, you know, exciting stunt work and, you know, some good punching going on. Um, and there really isn't any of that in the Justice League movie, the, like the Snyder version. Like it's and it's, it's, it's ridiculously long um, and none of it actually looks good. <laughs> like, yeah, I yeah. think it's so, such a sort of like, I mean, most people says about Zack Snyder, it's such a like, that kind of like '90s comic book, or maybe like late '80s, like Frank Miller thing of like this is a dark, serious movie. You can tell it's serious because it's it's very dark. You know, the lights aren't on. It's color graded. It's color graded. Very dark. It's dark. So, uh, is it for kids? It's dark. And then like it's got you know everything is so overwrought. It's just a real like all right, Edge Lord. You know, you know, calm down. Like you haven't actually made a serious film. You've just put things in slow motion and like changed the you know the grade down to to grimy. And it's like, yeah. but this is, that is at odds with the source material, which is naturally, you know, just colourful and very 60s. And, you know, one of the guys talks to fish, you know, there's no, there's no way to get around the fact that it's ridiculous. And James Wan didn't try. And that was obviously the correct approach. <laughs> yeah. All in all, just a kind of a fascinating episode. And I think interesting to think about and engage with, but is it worth spending four hours of your life actually watching <laughs> the Snyder Cut? Probably not, I would say. No. It's not good. Just watch uh, Spider-Man 2 instead. Uh, it's, it's yeah, Spider-Man 2 is great. And the extended, the extended edition isn't isn't better. 
You should watch the theatrical cut of Spider-Man 2. Is there an extended edition of Spider-Man 2? Yeah, there's just, there's just a few more scenes in it. It's like four more scenes. It's only like ten minutes longer. It's just not as good. Not as tight. It's a little recommendation for the film Spider-Man 2. Came out 15 years ago. Remember seeing it in the cinema, thinking this was good. Fifteen years later, I was on it. I knew what I was talking about when I was fourteen. Sounds great. When Graf heard something that changed his life, what he listened to? Film chat. When John Cusack made a mixtape for his future wife, what did she listen to? Film chat. And when Michael Madsen cut a guy's ear off, what was he dancing to? When Tim Robbins showed Shawshank that he had enough, which record did he choose? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, Danny, we've uh, been recording for a while now, which probably wrap things up. But I would like to make a request of you. I want you to give me the uh, 30-second, let's say, to one-minute review of the Mortal Kombat movie. Okay. Mortal Kombat, I have no familiarity with the video game, but the people who made this film definitely do. I think it, it feels to me like a really high-end, like, fan-made film. I feel like fan films are becoming more and more sophisticated because visual effects are easier to do on home computers and people can afford uh, digital cameras. And lo- there's loads of, like, examples of this, of people doing, like, their whatever film. Like, the guy, uh, Dan Trachtenberg, who directed... Ten Cloverfield Lane got his break because he made a Portal fan film. And it has that kind of feel to it where they can afford like some actors and lots of visual effects, but they can't afford crowd scenes or large sets. So it's weirdly sort of cheap and confined and also expensive looking at the same time. And it all felt a bit like a setup for a much bigger expensive film. It felt like this film was like a proof of concept feature film, weirdly. Like, we can do all the effects, we've got some good cast, well, we've got some good actors, and some people, they're all very good at kicking and stuff, and I felt like if I was familiar with the video game, I'd be like, oh my god, I can't believe they've, they've done this, the, the, the boss level from that game I played in 994, they've recreated that lovingly using motion capture technology, and, you know, if it makes enough money, they'll make it like one where they actually do a Mortal Kombat, uh, but I found it a bit meh, like... You know, it wasn't for me. It was definitely playing to some kind of audience, but I I wasn't that audience. What about yourself? I would agree with everything you said. I think um, having the feel of a well-made fan film is uh, 100% accurate. There were some lines where they only made sense if they were something that you would say in a video game because they just were very incongruous, like in the context of a film. Um, and uh, my main gripe with the film is that they kept talking about there being this big tournament between different, like, inter dimensional realms and the tournament never happened they just had fights but not in the context of a tournament kind of in lieu of having the tournament and i just really felt like if you promise a tournament it should be in your film so maybe they're saving that one for the sequel but that was a bit of a bit of a complaint that i had but other than that i would agree cool ice effects great ice effects great ice effects and a few of those like creative kind of what if this guy used his power for this kind of moments. Um, but other than that, uh, yeah, pretty, pretty uninspiring. But maybe for the Mortal Kombat fans, you know, it was awesome. I don't know. Yeah, I have only seen it was better than uh, Mortal Kombat 2 Annihilation. 
which I remember watching on Channel 5 when I was like nine, and there was a trailer for it like a week before, and I looked at the trailer and I was like, this is going to be the best film I've ever seen in my fucking life. There were like a guy with metal arms, there was like Kung Fu, and I watched it, and even that, that tender age, I was like, this is absolute garbage, like complete nonsense. So Did it have that famous bad line reading where she's like, too bad, you will die? Yeah. Uh, yeah, even as a yeah, nine-year-old, that one. yeah, I was like, I can't wait till there's like a video sharing platform so I can cut that bit and post it and everyone can watch it. <laughs> but then the, the day YouTube started, someone beat me to it. So, Ugh. you know, it's rubbish. When are they going to make a Crash Bandicoot film? You know, I'm all for nostalgic, cynical cash grabs if they're marketed directly to my interests. And just, I wish the studios would just con onto that fact. Well, that's the life of the fan, isn't it? To be pandered to. You don't mind them, you don't mind being exploited as long as the exploitation is very personalised. 100%. just feel I'm a bit out of step with popular culture, you know? My interests aren't being acknowledged and... You're not updating them? Not really. I make sure, I make sure that every, uh, every month I round up all the latest pop culture stuff and make sure that I'm not falling, falling out of touch so that when people younger than me make references, I can always... Yeah, knowingly laugh along and join in. Yeah, I don't miss anything. I'm, I'm always <laughs> up to date with whatever's going on. Have you listened to a lot of BTS? Uh, I've listened to every song released by uh, by BTS. I'm an I'm an expert. I know everything about BTS. As soon as they became popular, I was like, I'm on it. This isn't going to escape me. I'm not missing out on this. I'm going to do my research. I know it all. I know all the all the top TikToks. I know them. <laughs> You know, I, I know so little about public culture. I can't be like, oh, you don't know this? BTS is the only thing I'm vaguely aware of. It's like a sort of you could modern have, you thing. Could have really, you could have really uh, d- done a ringer on me there by just making something up and I would have claimed to have uh, to have known all about it. Yeah, I just... <laughs> but I didn't. Didn't. I'm old. Didn't. I don't have the energy anymore. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been a very illuminating chat. It's been very educational. Are we going to be back... Um, I've seen Nomadland, and I'll be damned if I'm not gonna. Well, we should do. We should. We should try our darndest to sort of catch up on those Oscar movies, which are just, which are now being released in cinemas because cinemas are open. You know, you can go to a screening of Sound of Metal or Judas and the Black Messiah. So let's catch up on all those heavy hitters. Come back for an intense talk about these intense dramas, and some intense news items. And some uh, intense chat. It's gonna, get, it's gonna get. It's gonna get pretty intense. It's gonna be. Like. It's gonna be pretty intense. Yeah, great. Sounds good to me. Until that special occasion. Uh, keep watching the seas. <laughs> keep watching. Keep watching those seas. Keep watching those seas. Mother, you're alive. Too bad. You will die. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.